0: You grab your copy of God's Word and open to Judges chapter 19, the chapter that was just read in its entirety to us by our friend Marilyn, uh, Judges 19 verses 1 through 30. Judges 19 is the part of the last section of Judges. Judges is kind of divided into three sections. There's the introduction, which includes the, uh, the summary of the failure of the conquest of Israel, records Joshua's death and provides a summary of what is about to go down in the book of Judges. It opens up with the cycle of Judges. The middle section is that record of the Judges that we've seen. And the last section, Judges, of Judges that we're in now, uh, records what life was like in Israel when there was no king. And Judges 19 is uh, particularly dark and disturbing. I would submit to you that if you were to take a survey of popular passages for pastors to preach on, Judges 19 would not be on the list. <laughs> it would be something in the Gospels, a psalm, maybe a letter of Paul, but not Judges 19. Um, Judges 19 is possibly one of the most outrageous, darkest, disturbing books, chapters in all of the scripture. Uh, so I, I say all this uh, to say that I ask that you would be patient with me and gracious with me as I seek to preach this passage. I ask that you would be humble and and receptive to what God's Word has to speak to us this morning. I've never heard a sermon out of Judges 19. Um, I haven't seen Judges 19 in a devotional book or in a kid's Bible story. Um, But Judges 19 is in our Bibles for a reason. And if we believe as a church that the Word of God is living and active, that all of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, then we have to do something with Judges 19. So I would just ask, and I just want to pray again that God would speak to us through His Word, that He would give me the words to say, uh, and that Jesus would be glorified. So Father, I pray that You would be with me now, that You would guard and be with uh, the sermon, that You'd guard me from error, that You would speak through me. Father, I know that a passage like this can bring many uh, emotions and, and thoughts and uh, hurts to mind, as I know there are many in this room who have been abused and have been beaten and have been raped. and humiliated. And Father, I pray that uh, your word would would be preached boldly and truthfully this morning, that it would be done in love, and that ultimately, Jesus, you would be held out as the only truth and hope that there is, that, uh, Jesus, that you would be at the center of this text and the center of our lives, and that you would be glorified. In your name I pray. Amen. So, Like I said before, I want to be honest about this passage, and I also want to be sensitive. I know that Uh, many of you in this room have been abused physically verbally emotionally uh, spiritually and that a passage like this can can be very hurtful and bring up feelings that you might not want to deal with but uh, but i also pray that uh, that you would be gracious and honest as i want to be bold i mean the bible is honest about sin the bible is brutally honest about the effects of sin and what it does Uh, so uh, I, I pray that the truth would be spoken clearly and honestly this morning. So, uh, Judges 19.1, let's begin there at the beginning. Judges 19.1 begins with the refrain that we've seen a couple of times so far. We've seen it in chapter 17, we've seen it in chapter 18. In those days there was no king in Israel. This phrase is showing us that, uh, is warning us on what is about to come. That when there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Self was king, there was no leadership there was no real morality, no spiritual life. And with this kind of warning and refrain of linking what's, what we've seen in the past, it records that a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. In your Bibles, you might see a little footnote down at the bottom. Uh, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of uh, the Hebrew scriptures, it says, became angry with or felt repugnant towards. It could mean that she was sexually unfaithful. It could also mean that she was just angry or Something had happened, and she left her master and went to her dad's house in Bethlehem. And after about four months, the husband arose and went after her. Now, why he waited so long, these four months, I don't know. Maybe he didn't really care about her. Certainly, it seems you could conclude that from the rest of the story. Uh, maybe he had other things going on. It doesn't say. But after four months, he arose to speak kindly to her and bring her back. And he had with him a servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him to her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And although hospitality was highly valued in the Near Eastern cultures, the father seems to be very elaborate and even go over the top in this story. You can see that he stays with him three Days, and he urges him to stay a while, three days. And then he says, on the fourth day, oh, stay with us a little longer. On the fourth day, he gets up, ready to leave. The woman's father said, have something to eat before you go. So the two men sat down and ate together, and they ate they ate and drank, and the woman's father said, please, stay another night and enjoy yourself. Then the man got up to leave, but his father-in-law kept urging him to stay. So when he finally gave in and stayed the night, so this is now the fourth night. So the fifth day, morning of the fifth day, he gets up again, ready to leave. The woman's father again says, "Have something to eat, then you can leave later this afternoon." So they had another day of feasting, and later, that man and his concubine and his servant were preparing to leave. His father-in-law said, "Look, it's almost evening. Stay the night and enjoy yourself. Tomorrow you can go on your way." You can just imagine how long this might have gone out. But this Levite is determined to leave. He takes his saddle donkey and his concubine and he heads in the direction of Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He wants to get out of there, even though it was late. Uh, It was late afternoon, probably wouldn't have been an ideal time to travel. He leaves, finally this fifth day. And the servant wants him to stop at Jebus before it was called Jerusalem, because at this time, Jebus was still controlled by the Jebusites. It was controlled by foreigners, non-Israelites. But the Levite tells the servant, no, we're not going to stay here in this town of uh, non-Israelites. Let's keep going on to Gibeah. Gibeah belonged to the tribe of Benjamin, which, in the Levite's mind, would have been safer than this non-Israelite town. The sun was setting as they come to Gibeah, so they stop and spend the night there. And in verse 15, the narrator records, And he, referring to the Levite, went in and sat down in the open square of the city. For no one took them into his house to spend the night. Now, in those days, it was a little different. You didn't have hotels that you booked online, and you could arrange your stays or BRBOs. If you were a foreigner or a guest in a town, you would go and sit in the town square. And that was a sign to the city that this was a guest, and we, we need to open them, uh, bring them into our house. They need hospitality. Uh, and this is what he does. He goes and sits in the open square. But although this was the sign and this was the custom that this man needed some hospitality, no one takes him in. And it's not until an old man comes home from work in the, uh, in the evening from his, from his field, who's not even from the Benjamites. He's a foreigner in Gibeah. He's from the hill country of Ephraim, and he's simply residing in Gibeah. He asked the Levite in the square, where are you going? And where do you come from? And the Levite responds in verse 18, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of hill country of Ephraim, from which I have come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah. I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. Now, as I was studying this, that, that house of the Lord it seems like it came out of nowhere. And uh, there's actually some scholars who believe that this might not have been in the original manuscripts, that this house of the Lord seems odd because the temple it wasn't built. It could have been a reference to the tabernacle, but most likely a scribe could have misunderstood the final word, the Hebrew word, my house, as an abbreviation for a name of the Lord. And, and this is why actually, again, referencing the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, it simply says, I'm going to my house. Now, that could have been the case. He could have been going to the name of the Lord, but that's, that's one example of, of what it could have meant there, I'm going to my house, or I'm going to the house of the Lord, but he says to the man, we have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. In other words, the Levite is, is telling this old man, we're not going to be a burden. We have everything we need. All we need is a place to stay. I've got feed for my animals. We've got food for ourselves. We've got plenty of food. And the old man says, peace to you. Welcome. Come stay with me. He says, but do not spend the night in the square. He's warning this, this man, whatever you do, do not spend the night in the square. So seemingly in Gibeah, this town, it's not only unwelcoming to guests, there's no hospitality shown, it's also dangerous. This should have been a safe place. Right? This is the town of, in the tribe of Benjamin among the Israelites, should have been safe. But the old man says, don't spend the night here, come and stay with me. He brings them into his house, gives donkeys feed, and after they washed their feet, they ate and drank together. And notice now that this is a foreigner welcoming another foreigner into his house. Right? The Benjamites are not really uh, doing what they're supposed to do in this moment. The story continues in verse 22. And as they were making their hearts merry, meaning they were, they were enjoying themselves, behold the men of the city, worthless fellows. These are a crowd of troublemakers, wicked men surround the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who has come into your house that we may know him. Now, if you're familiar with this, no, it's a Hebrew expression or euphemism. It's a way of describing being physically intimate. Right? So these, the men are saying to this man, bring this guy out that we may have sex with him. That's literally what they're saying here. And this is the hospitality that's found in Gibeah. Right? It's, not, it's not a welcome basket. Welcome to Gibeah. Enjoy your stay. It's a group of men surrounding a house and saying, we want to, we want to rape you. At first, the old man seems like he has some character. He stands up for his guests. Verse 23, don't do this. This is wicked. This man has come into my house. He says, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. He knows how outrageous this is. He's urging the men, don't do this. Yet, while he stands up for his guests, he does something, I would say, that is equally outrageous and wicked. He says, here, let me bring out my virgin daughter and the man's concubine now. Violate, in other words, saying abuse them and do whatever seems good, whatever you want to them. But do not commit this outrageous thing against this man. So this old man sees how outrageous the men of Gibeah want to do to this man. He he defends the man, don't do this, this is wicked. Yet he offers his daughter, virgin daughter, and the concubine. This is sick and horrendous. And the story continues in verse 25, the men don't listen to him, and so the man seizes his concubine, he takes her outside, and these worthless fellows rape and abuse her all night, and it's not until daybreak that they let her go. She comes back and she collapses at the doorway of the man's house. And the Levite gets up in the morning. He opens the door. He sets on his way. He sees the concubine lying on the door. And you see his callousness and his wickedness and the way he treats her. He he seemingly goes to bed, acts like there's nothing wrong, gets up in the morning. And rather than laying his life on the line, rather than seeking help, he simply commands to her, get up. Let's go. Let us be going. She doesn't respond you see his lack of care, his lack of love, his protection for her. He puts her on his donkey. He sets out for his home. And as if the story couldn't get any worse in verse 29, once he gets home, he takes out a knife and he cuts her limb by limb into 12 pieces. He sends her throughout all the territory of Israel. And in this moment, the narrator doesn't tell us if she's dead or not. Now, she could have been dead and, and he cuts up her dead body. She might not have been dead. We don't know. The narrator doesn't record but nonetheless, this is gruesome and sick and degrading. This is not how you should treat anyone who's made in the image of God, who has value and worth. Verse 30 says, all who saw it said such a thing had never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Another way of thinking about that is think this story over. Discuss it and speak up. What do we do with Judges 19? How should we respond to this story? What can we learn from this story? One of the darkest stories in all of the Bible. Well, to help make sense of what goes down in Judges, you know we've been every week going over three questions. Help us make sense of the story. What, the first question, what does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? And that seems like a little bit of a ridiculous question to ask in reading Judges 19, trying to make sense of it, because God's not really even mentioned Outside of this Levite saying, I'm going to the house of the Lord, there's no word from God, there's no call to God, there's no speaking on God's behalf, there's no rebuke from God. God is seemingly absent from the story, and that seems to be the point. The concubine, the old man, the Levite, the worthless men of Gibeah, everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel, and this is what we can learn about God and his relationship with his people. When God's word is ignored or unknown, when God's laws, commands, and precepts are forgotten, or rebelled against, people are abused, used, victimized, and there are abominations and lawlessness that occurs. The worthless men in this story are more concerned with their own wants and needs, their own sexual desires than anyone else. The Levite is more concerned about himself and staying safe than the welfare of his concubine. The story shows that apart from God's grace and his word being submitted to or obeyed, humanity will spiral in lawlessness, where those who are strong will abuse or hurt others, people will fend for themselves, and those who are weak will be victimized. You see, from the beginning to end, this story is full of sin. The men of Gibeah offered no hospitality and said they wanted to have sex with the Levite, which is forbidden in the law. The men of Gibeah rape and abused the Levite's concubine. Women were to be protected and the defenseless were to be defended. The the Levite's concubine is neither valued nor protected. Her dead body is not treated with respect or honor. It's cut up into 12 pieces like she was some sort of animal and the Levite was a butcher. The people of Israel were ignorant of God's word in an outright rebellion and not following God's ways. And the story shows the depravity of humanity, doesn't it? All humanity needs God, His word, His law, His grace, without him, society, humanity disintegrates. Humanity devours one another. And before we seek to apply this passage or see what warning or exhortation this story has for us, we want to see how does this story connect with the larger story of the Bible? Question two: How does this story connect to the Bible's larger story, our meta narrative? And I want to highlight three ways that this story connects with the larger story of the Bible. Number one, the story points back to a story found in Genesis 19. The original audience and hearers of the story in Judges 19 would not have missed the similarities and the atrocities shared with the men of Sodom as mentioned in Genesis 19. I, mean, it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that Judges 19 is... is very similar to Genesis 19. Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the story that's recorded in Genesis 19 about Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah were two cities that were great in evil and represent lawlessness, godlessness, immense wickedness. Their sin is so bad, so flagrant, so wicked that God determines to destroy them, to wipe the city clean, to cleanse the earth of their sin. So in Genesis 19, God sends angels to Sodom to get a man named Lot, who is a nephew of Abraham and his family, out of the city before God's gonna wipe it out. And when two angels come to Sodom in the evening, notice the similarities of this story, Lot meets them by the city gates and welcomes them to stay in his house. He tells them, Wash your feet, spend the night. Lot urges them, Do not spend the night in the town square, but stay with me in my house. After they eat, the men of the city of Sodom surround the house. They call out to Lot, Where are the men? who came to you tonight. Send them out to us that we may have sex with them. See the similarities here. Lot goes out and says, don't do this evil, brothers. Look, I've got two virgin daughters. I'll bring them out to you. The men of Sodom don't want the virgin daughters, and they start beating down the door. The angels, they take Lot, they bring him into his house, and they strike the men of Sodom with blindness. The angels instruct Lot and his family to leave the city because they're about to destroy it. They take him out of the city. They say, run. Don't look back. Get out of here. And out of the sky, the Lord rains down burning sulfur upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And he destroys, annihilates, everything is demolished. So the story is showing us in in Judges 19, the people of Israel are literally as sinful and as wicked as Sodom, a city that represented like the epitome of evil and wickedness. The story connects back to the the larger story showing that how Gibeah, a city of Benjamin of the tribe of Israel, a city of God's people, has become just like Sodom. Severe lawlessness, godlessness, so wicked, God destroyed it with burning sulfur from heaven. The story shows how the people of Israel have become just like the pagan nations they were to be set apart from. Secondly, the story points forward to and warns us about uh, Israel's first king, Saul. The story serves as a warning and foreshadows the leadership and the morality of Israel's first king, a guy named Saul. Saul was a king who was chosen by the people. He was a king who eventually goes off the rocker. He's consumed by jealousy. He does not seek God. He he kills himself. He's not a, a man that exemplifies or represents a man after God's own heart, unlike his successor, a man named David, who is anointed by God who is described as a man of being God's own heart and who brings unity and expands the kingdom of Israel. You might say, well, how does Judges 19 connect with Saul? And you might guess, where is, what tribe is Saul from? Benjamin. Guess what Saul's hometown is? Gibeah. Did you notice as well the great contrast between the hospitality shown to the Levite in Bethlehem versus Gibeah? Where do you might suspect that David is from? Bethlehem. So in a way, the story is, is, is warning the readers and, and the readers who would have read this story in this time would have seen how uh, good things don't come from Gibeah. In other words, avoid those Benjamites. So the story shows how Gibeah has become like Sodom. Israel has become like Sodom. It shows how the story is a foreshadowing, a warning of what's to come with the first king. And finally, Number three of the story shows that what we've seen all throughout Judges is that humanity is in dire need for a savior, for a good king, a righteous, good, eternal savior, a king who was eventually be promised to this good king, David, who would be promised to come from the lineage of David, who would be born in Bethlehem and was promised to bring eternal peace, a kingdom of prosperity and rule and righteousness. The story points and shows the need for King Jesus, the God-man, the Savior of the world. Now that we looked at those first two questions, how does this story connect to the larger story and what can we see from God or how does this story relate to God and his people, let's look at that third question. What admonition or exhortation does this story offer? In other words, what warning does this story have for us or what call does this story offer? What do we do with Judges 19? I think the story presents a warning. The original audience of Judges 19, when Judges was written, would have seen and seen the direct correlation between how Gibeah was like Sodom. They would have seen, uh, it's a warning about that the people of God can and will act like wicked, worthless people like Sodom and Gomorrah, apart from godly leadership, his word, and his grace, that the people of Israel are no better than the city God annihilated by sending sulfur from heaven and burning them. The story warns us of the danger of self-rule, self-protection, and lawless living apart from God. There is a real sense in which we should read the story and feel upset. Right? That's good and right. This story should cause us to feel sick or shocked. We should feel deeply for this concubine who was beaten and raped and killed and cut up. It should cause something inside of us to feel sadness and weep and to seek cause uh, help and hope to those who are defenseless and hurting i think number one it should cause us to mourn and grieve as we see the sin outside of us and we see the sin that's been committed to us i believe it would be wise for us to examine in light of this story and weeping over sin over the treatment of the defenseless and the weak in our society and how does that cause us to respond Do we see those who are weak and those who are poor and those who are defenseless in our society and and weep and feel just the same as we read a story like this? If this story causes something inside of us to feel hurt and compassion for this concubine, does looking out at our world and our society cause compassion to rise up as we see the same thing happen to women and children, and the poor, and the oppressed. Men, there is something incongruent in our hearts if we are moved and grieved by this story, yet we are not grieved by the amount of pornography, human trafficking, girls in sex trade, and many transactions that have happened right in this parking lot, right up the street. My brothers and sisters, there is something incongruent in our hearts if we are moved by this story, yet not moved to compassion by the oppression and and abuse in our society. So I think, number one, we should grieve and weep at the sin outside of us and grieve at the sin that's been committed against us. But number two, this story should cause us to weep as we see the great sin inside of us. The brutal reality of the Bible is that there is a Sodom and Gomorrah and that In all of us, we can be deeply sinful and wicked and totally depraved. It's not popular. It's not easy to hear. Even now as we read the story and see, for us to put ourselves as I am the worthless man in this story is hard, is it not? We don't want to do that. We'd rather associate and identify with the victim. The Bible is brutally honest that there is a Sodom in us, that there is great sin in the world, but there is great sin in our hearts, that we are great sinners. This is the message of the law, the prophets, especially the teaching of Jesus, that our hearts are desperately sick and sinful. Now, you might say, well, I haven't committed gang rape. I haven't beaten someone's door and and mistreated and abused someone like this. And we might not have committed the exact same sins as the Gibeonites or this Levite, but we have, if we're honest, we have hurt and abused and misused people. We have mistreated those who are made in the image and likeness of God. We may have dark secrets and hidden sins in this way. We might be just like the Levite, who we have sought our own good and our warfare apart from those who need protection and help. We have failed and sinned, maybe not so much in our great acts against someone, but in not doing anything. We have failed in enabling and failing to prevent great evil happening around us. Our sin might be those of sins of inaction. So we want to read Judges 19 and grieve for the sin outside of us, the sin that's been committed to us, but we want to grieve over the sin that's inside of us. We want to hate sin from this passage. Amen? The sin that's caused the great grievous in the story, the sin that's caused us such pain and the sin that we've committed against others, the sin that has separated us from God, the sin that warrants just wrath and utter separation from God. We want to fight against sin. The story should cause us to want to fight against sin, fight for the defenseless, fight for holiness, fight against false teaching, fight with teaching that accords with godliness. We don't want to see people treated in this way. We want to cherish the gospel and God's grace shown towards us. The message of the gospel, the message of Jesus brings us hope that Jesus can forgive sinners like the worthless men in the story and like worthless men like you and me. See, like the Levite's concubine, we have been unfaithful to our master. We have found God repugnant. We have left him. Well, God made us and created us and we were meant to serve him and worship him. We've turned aside, gone our own way. We've worshiped other gods and sought to give happiness and joy and life and purpose and security and satisfaction from other things apart from God. We've all done this. Like the Israelites, we've done what's evil in the sight of the Lord. We have served other gods. We've worshiped ourselves Our possessions, our relationships, our families. Yet God in his Son, in his love, sent Jesus to speak kindly to us, to bring us back, to pursue us, to save that which was lost, to free captives, to bring light to the darkness. And when faced with danger and evil and wickedness, God did not seize us and throw us out into the street to be abused and raped and beaten. God sent his son to be abused and mocked and beaten on our behalf. Although we were worthy of death and punishment, God sent Jesus to be beaten and abused in our place. Jesus leaves his throne, his rightful place at the Father's hand, his throne, and he humbled himself. He suffered at the hands of evil men, although he did nothing wrong. He was completely perfect. He was falsely accused. He was mocked. He was spit on. He was naked and publicly ashamed, humiliated, although he was not guilty. He was crucified, the most horrific death of the time. Sometimes I think we might get callous to even the idea of crucifixion because we might have grown up in the church or we, we see images of it. Crucifixion was awful. If We read a story like this, it was 19 and we think, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. That doesn't move us. Crucifixion was horrible. The worst death you could have died at the time. And he died in our place on our behalf. He died alone, naked on the cross. And as he died, everything went dark. But death didn't have the final word. Jesus was in the tomb three days, but death did not have the final word. That stone that held Jesus in his tomb was rolled away. After three days, Jesus conquered sin. He conquered death and he rose again. In his worst moment of shame and darkness and agony, he paid the penalty for our sins. But in his moment of victory, he assured that he is who he said he is, that anyone who trusts in him could have their sins forgiven and could walk in newness of life, could be resurrected one day, could have secure life after death in Jesus Christ. Jesus was proof and his resurrection was proof that he had power to forgive, that he was the son of God and he appeared to more than 500 people. And he returned to his father's right hand. And right now he's interceding on our behalf and all of his people. And he's doing the same thing that he did when he first came. He's seeking to save which was lost. And Jesus doesn't take our dead bodies to his home and cut us up. He was cut up and brings us to his home to put us back together piece by piece. The Bible says that by, from one degree of glory, we are transformed into his image. In other words, Jesus is changing us from and Our enslavement to sin, looking like sin and Satan and death, and he's tra- transforming us, changing us to look more and more like Jesus, more and more like life, one degree of glory to another. And my friends, this is what King Jesus did. This is what he's doing, and this is what he will do. Amen. And what this story shows us, and what I want to end with, is that if we do not see how violent and vile and wicked we really are, this message of grace and good news won't be as meaningful to us. This grace won't move us, this news of hope, this gospel of Jesus won't really mean anything to us if we're not warned, if we not only see the wickedness that's out there, but we see the wickedness that's in here. For example, if a salesman showed up to my house today and tried to sell me on boat insurance, I would say, man, a great sales pitch, that sounds good. There's one problem. I don't have a boat. I don't need what you have to offer me. I might consider this if I had a boat. I don't have a boat, therefore I don't need boat insurance. And my friends, in the same way, if we don't see the gospel as precious, we don't see the good news as, as we won't see it as something that we need if we don't see the peril and the dire condition that we're in. We don't have a felt need for the gospel. This won't really be transformative. It won't be good news to us. The idea of Jesus, he'll be a good teacher and his teachings talk about, you know, peace and it's good to follow him. It won't really mean anything to us. In the same way, we won't see the gospel as precious. And for those who confess faith in Jesus, those who call themselves Christians, we grow and change as this message becomes more and more real to us. As the gospel is driven deeper and deeper into our heart. This is how we change, this is how we grow, this is how we see the, and worship God more deeply and more fully. Because we see our great wickedness and simultaneously we see his great grace shown towards us. So I will, I will argue and submit that we will appreciate the gospel and experience in our hearts to the degree we grasp our wickedness and our great need for Jesus. For example, I'll give another example of a salesman or going to the mail. Let's say I go to the mail tomorrow, I check my mail, and I see in the mail that an advertising company has sent me a free pen. I say, great, free pen. It has, maybe it even has my, my name or my address on it. That's awesome. I just got a free pen. That's nice. But this gift, I mean, I've got a ton of pens. I'm not in dire need for a pen. This gift probably wouldn't lead me to praise this great advertising company, write a letter of thanks to them. I probably wouldn't sing songs to them or or send some massive gift for this precious pen that they sent me. It was a couple bucks maybe. It's not that precious of a gift. But let's say I'm dying. I have a heart disease. Without a new heart, I'm I'm a goner. I have no hope. And I go to the mailbox. In the same way I found an envelope that I have been selected to receive a new heart. For free, for whatever reason. Now what's gonna move me to worship and thanks? A free pen or a new heart? What am I in need of? A free pen, a new heart. This would cause great celebration, great thankfulness, right? I once had no hope, but now I have hope. I'm gonna get a new heart. My friends, is Jesus a free pen to you? are your heart how precious is Jesus to you how ignorant are aware of you of your own sinfulness christian have you become callous to god's scandalous grace has sin rooted deeply in your heart that it's blinding you from the beauty of jesus and the supremely good news that the gospel is are you fighting for sin are fighting against sin or are you passively sitting by while well, it deadens your affections for God, it's stealing your joy, and it leaves you able to hear the gospel, right? Able to even sing songs about it and be more excited about other things and about Jesus. Does your sin cause you to weep and confess your sin, and do you cherish the grace of God more deeply now than you once did? these two things should go hand in hand, shouldn't they? Now, there is a a tactic, I think, of the flesh and the enemy that that on the one hand, there there are many in this room who he will use messages that talk about sin to beat you down and to talk to you that you are not worthy and and you will be prone to self-deprecation and self-loathing apart from God's grace. But there might be others who might be more prone to pride in this room more prone to forget the need for God's grace. They're really not that sinful. They had a good life and they're not as bad as these men. And I, I can't really think of a lot of sins that I committed this week. I'm just gonna be honest. I don't know when the last time I confessed sin and I don't really want to. I don't really wanna even look and examine or ask someone what, what sin is on in my heart. And we might be ignorant or unwilling to examine the own depths of my sinfulness. And this is also a great danger. The gospel is such good news that it leads us neither to self-deprecation nor self-righteousness. It leads to neither neither self-hate nor self-glorification. It leads to great humility and great confidence. In the gospel, a person can say, I am more sinful and weaker than I ever before believed. Do you believe that? Are you seeing that more and more? In the gospel, a person will increasingly realize their wickedness and be more and more awaved of their depravity than ever before. But simultaneously in the gospel, a person can say, through Jesus, I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. That's good news. My friends, let us come to Jesus now and sit at the feet of the cross. Ponder and consider and reflect the beautiful grace of God that's shown toward us that we would, as we think and about our own sinfulness, the sin that's been committed against us, that we would grieve and we would confess, but the grace of God would appear more sweet to us than it has ever before. May the light of the truth of God's word shine into our heart and in the darkness that still resides there, that the gospel would be driven deeper and deeper and it would lead to worship and gratitude and joy and obedience and courage and boldness. May we experience God's grace more deeply as we examine our sin. Amen? Amen. Let us consider this, take counsel, and speak up. Let's pray.